Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. Willie Mae Brown is an author and visual artist. She lived in Selma, Alabama until she was 17 when she moved to New York City. Growing up in Selma, she experienced the civil rights movement firsthand, including meeting Martin Luther King Jr. when she was 12. Willie Mae Brown is the author of a new book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. The book is written for young adults, and it reflects on her time growing up in Alabama and how the civil rights era shaped her coming of age. Later, we'll hear her message for the next generation of activists. Willie Mae Brown, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. So this is your first book. You've had an extensive career as an artist and a storyteller. What made you want to publish your memoirs as a book and put them down into words? I wanted to write because there was something that had happened in my hometown where I lived in Selma, Alabama. And I thought that, you know, as we get older, and we remember so much. It, it just changes when you're, you're getting older. Your thoughts come to you again. And, and you say, well, you know, what about that? You know, let me talk about that to people. And I wanted the history of the way we lived to be recorded. And when I would speak to other people about doing it, they would say, you know, that's over. That's gone. No no one's thinking about that right now. It's too much going on to be thinking about that. And I thought, I don't want these people to forget what they went through and how hard it was to get by sometimes, although my family was pretty good. And as I said, something had happened there. And I thought that everybody that had lived there and was still alive, I felt that they had an obligation to record. And I was one of those people that should record what it, what, what had happened. I started writing a long time ago, these stories. And because I'm not that organized, I keep things in my head. And I started writing, I think it was about 12 to 15 years ago. And my manuscript was lost in my purse. Someone took it from me. And um, I started again. And I started writing the history of my family and some of the things that I loved about Selma, how I felt it made me feel. That's that's why I, I wanted to write it, because it was important. You call the book, and, and you talk about that in, in your intro, you call it My Selma, and I'm wondering 
if you can explain that title to us and, and your understanding that everyone has a unique memory of a place and that place in this book, of course, is Selma, Alabama. I, I named it my Selma because I took ownership of what had happened with us and with me at the age that I was. It's my Selma because I live in New York and it's my New York. It's how we move through the place where we are, what we see, what we do. And it gives ownership. This is what happened to me. This is what I remember. And so two, three, four, five people probably see the same thing. The expression of it, it's different with everyone. So through my eyes, this is my Selma. Can you describe what your your Selma looked like and what the lives of your your family and your parents looked like? I When I'm reading your book um, and uh, learning about Selma, and that's a place I've never been, there just seemed like a very very good sense of community there and a, a big shared purpose in the, in the community that you were part of. You're right. We were shared, a shared um, community. We helped each other. We all knew what had happened and how we got there and where we came from. And no one was better than the other person. And Selma is a beautiful place. It still is. I know that recently it has gone through a lot of things, but it was a beautiful place. We had a car, so we was able to drive around and really take a good look at Alabama, the Selma, the Orville, the Tyler, all of these places, Beloit and, and Hazen, Alabama. We, we had the opportunity to go and look around and see what was going on. And how beautiful it was. It's, it's, I'm glad you asked me that because I remember when I first came to New York and uh, I saw pomegranates on the stands, at the, at the fruit stands. And I thought, oh my goodness, they want this amount. When we just went to the country and just pulled one off the tree, you know, and, you know, just ate it. But it's a beautiful place. The people join together. They eat together. They went to school together. We we did all of those things. And we had friends. And our lives were okay. We knew that something was in the midst because it had started long before uh, the 60s. But it wasn't as intense as we were growing up. Did your did your family, did your parents ever, um, were they able to articulate to you what was happening as you were were growing up? It, it seems like, you know, the civil rights movement really was coming, um, you know, into, into power and, and into play really in conjunction with your coming of age. I've always wanted someone to ask me that question. I remember my mom and I were walking from a grocery store in the neighborhood. And as we were crossing First Avenue, she said to me, you know, we're not going to have these buses much longer because 
they are going to boycott them. And that was the first time that I had heard that word. And she said, and a lot of things are going to change because, you know, these people don't want us to have anything. They don't want us to do anything, but we're not going to ride in these buses that, that much longer. So, you know, I just want you to know that. And I heard what she said. And it did not impact me at all. You know, I was a child. I had something in my hand that I really wanted to get busy with. And uh, she, when we were coming up the steps at, at our house, we, it wasn't far from the store where we were. She said, you all keep that radio on, you know. And I thought, that's a great thing because I love music. But she wasn't telling us just to keep it on, to hear the music, listen to what is going on. And we didn't have, I don't think at that time, we didn't have a TV. But we had like two or three um, radios in the house and we would keep them on. And we soon got a television and that that was it. Everything stayed on because we had to know what was going on. And then my father bought uh, a subscription to magazines and to the uh, Selma, Pub uh, Selma uh, Times Journal so that we could read it and um, know what was going on. We also had a war at that time, too, um, the Vietnam War. So we need, we had a lot of things to, to watch for and to listen for. Mm. One of my um, favorite parts of your book is just how um, illustrative you are and you talk about... Um, how you want to show, you want people to hear, see, and smell the injustice, which was so powerful to me because often we don't think about the smells and the hearing. We don't think about those senses when we think of um, things like like injustice. But um, I found your book so so immersive in in that, and I was wondering if you could talk about those scents and those things that you heard and those you know, things that connect you back to that sense of place? All the five senses work together. When you see something, you know, in the streets that is not pleasant or it is pleasant, you remember that. You, you can remember what you were doing and how it came upon you to see, you know, someone step on the petal of a rose and... Um, the smell that it might come out of there, even though you don't smell it, you know that there's a smell there. Everything opens up in the senses. Um, this, this movement, it had a sense of smell and touch and fear, all of that stuff together. So what I... I wanted the sounds also to be in that. And when you come into Selma, when I when, when it, whenever we left Selma to go to Montgomery or another place and you come back into Selma, it had its own smell. You know, it, it smelled of like pine and swamp because we had, you know, little water streams in, on the roads, and it smelled of, it smelled right. When the movement came, you had those smells, you had those feelings, 
And they felt right, but they were not. Something was going on. And it's hard to try to get people to smell something that you've experienced. The best thing to do is to just put it in words, find some things, some words to express how it smelled. Selma had a hum also because it was so quiet and it was almost as if the earth was talking to us. It was like humming. And I've asked other people about that and they said, yes, it did. It did have a hum to it. So, yeah. I'm wondering how did you eventually grasp the extent of um, what was happening around you and also the violence that was happening towards black men and women growing up around you? I listened to the talk um, when my mother and my father would talk. He worked for the Southern Railroad and he would come home sometimes and just sit on the front porch, which he loved really a lot. You could just sit on your front porch at night. No one bothered you. You could sleep on the front porch without it being screened in. You didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of um, violence like that. And people walking up on your porch, they may even join you and sleep there with you. You had to be careful. But um, I would listen to what they had to say. And having journalists like, um, the ones we had back then, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, we always knew the truth. The journalist told us the truth about what was going on and word for word. So you knew. And it was always in your face. It was always in your ears. Someone was always talking about someone who had left town because they could not deal with what was going on with the white people or um, they decided to move somewhere else. So we heard it and we had the TV then and, and we had the radio and we had the conversation of our um, elders. We listened. I did. And it was in school. And when the, when the, when the talk started happening and the, um, students from other cities started coming in we knew that the change and we heard it in church we were we were kept up by our elders and preachers and friends and you know it wasn't something that we talked about every day but you knew it was there Willie Mae Brown is an artist and author of her recently published book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. We'll hear more from her after the break. I'm Tess Terrible, and this is Where We Live. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. Willie Mae Brown left Selma, Alabama at age 17 to start a new life, but her memories of growing up in the South at the height of the Civil Rights era stayed with her. She explores her memories, experiences, and hopes in her book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. Willie Mae spent one summer babysitting for a single mother named Peggy Nichols. One afternoon, she went with Peggy and her children to the laundromat. In the book, she talks about this day and how it changed her life. I asked her about that experience and why it was so important to retell it in her book. Yeah. And here we are. I had um, started working for a woman. She's a very nice woman, too. She had a trailer in Selma. She had two beautiful children. And I wanted something to do to make more money. And she had a she had a visitor that came to stay with her for the summer or something. And she I got the job there and she had called on me to help her with her laundry because an extra person was in her house. And I went there to help her. And she was just a good-hearted person. She, she, because she was not prejudiced. She didn't see it in other people. And sometimes you forget that. You know, you just don't think about it. And I, I didn't think about it either sometimes. So we go over to the, um, get the kids together and we go over to the laundromat. And she said, you take this bag of clothing and I'll follow you. Can I get the kids together? I'll follow you and I'll go and take the rest of the, the laundry in. So, hey, I'm a kid. I got the back the the bag of clothing, and her she had she had a son, <clears throat> excuse me, that had a you know he would wet the bed, and I brought it into the the store the front store, and um, I saw that there was a man there. I didn't pay him any mind because I have a passport 
to come into this store. My passport is this white woman. Her color allows me to go wherever I want to go with her. And I drop down on my knees. I start sorting things out and the smell was overwhelming, but I did it anyway. And I noticed that this guy was walking. He had about three rows rows of uh, laundry uh, machines and he was walking back and forth and I could hear him humming something or mumbling something, but I didn't pay him any mind. I got a right to be here. And so he comes through my row and he stands over me after pacing up and down for a while. And he comes over and he stands by up in front of me. So I'm not going to look him in the face because we didn't look white folks in the face a lot of times. And this is a adult, whether he's black or white, I'm, he's standing there. I'm sure he's going to try to help me with what I'm doing. But let me wait to see what it is that he wants. So I'm just picking the clothes and putting them away. And he said something to me. And I didn't hear him. And he took a stance. And his stance was one of his hands was hanging lower. And the other one was it just seemed like one hand on his body was stiffer than the other, almost tensed. And he's, I know he's staring at me and I'm looking at his shoes. They're black and his socks black. And he had on a silver gray pair of pants. And I kind of glanced up just enough not to look into his face and I caught his chin, and I caught the slit in his mouth, and it was wet. The corners were wet, and he was breathing hard. And he was in good shape, it seemed. But there was something about his hand, the one that didn't move. And I was told from my heart, something's wrong. And he said, I'm not going to ask you anymore. Now I've asked you once, and I want you out of my place. And everything changed at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, why is he calling me this. I, I I actually looked around the room because those clothes in, in my heart, I'm saying, I didn't do this. I didn't bring this up in here to make you angry with me. So I'm, I'm a child. What, what, what do I do? And my life force said, you need to get up and leave. He's dangerous. And now I remember why the arm was so tense, because he was going to use that weapon to get me out of the store, and I couldn't fight him. His hands were bigger than mine. His 
arms were stronger. So I had to find a weapon of my own. My daddy wasn't there. The passport was outside in the car with the kids, not knowing what was going on. And I was compelled to move and to stand up. And suddenly, it just was the strangest thing. It's like yesterday, I'm seeing it now. Something started moving in front of me. It was not him because he was still in position, in a position like like I was prey and the mouth was still wet. And I glanced just a little bit further and I could see his hair. And it's just strange how that happened. This thing that came between us was like an effervescent and it bubbled and just parted me from him. And I stood up and I raised my arm because I thought that if his was one, mine could be one too. And I stretched it out with my index finger pointing to him to stay back. And I'm going to get out of here. Just let me get out of here. I didn't want the negativity that he had in himself. It was fierce. He was serious. And I started walking backwards. And then I heard the woman, she said, please, please, Willie Mac, please just go. Come on. And I kept walking back. I couldn't walk. I I didn't want to turn my back on him because I didn't trust him, because I knew who he was. So I I got out of there, and the woman came in, and she passed by me, and I saw her, but I didn't see her. And I bumped into the back of the car, and the kids were in there. And they said, Willie Mae, did you have fun in there? And I'm like, what? And I'm looking at them. They said, you're smiling. Did you have fun in there? And I didn't, I thought I was mean. I thought, I not mean, I thought I was angry. And how could they see a smile on my face? But it was the effervescence that was in me. It was the, it was the will to step out of his world to step into my own because had I stepped into his I may not be talking to you I think going going through a coming of age and especially going through that transition of being a girl and becoming a woman is difficult under normal circumstances and it sounds impossible and and just so overwhelming under the circumstances that you were growing up. And when I was reading that moment in your book, I was wondering if this is kind of the defining moment where you really went from being a young girl to being a young woman. And you know, Tess, I appreciate it. I really do appreciate it. Because 
there are 10 worlds that we can live in from hell to heaven. And if you jump into the world that another person is in, you're going to do your battle right there. Human revolution is something that we all go through. And in order to go through your human revolution, it doesn't matter what age you are, go through it. Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. But you got to know how to keep going. You know how you have to know how to maneuver like we did this movement. It was nonviolent. It is hard to say, I'm not going to fight back. It is hard to take a blow with a billy club that some of my friends and family members may have taken and say it's hard. It's hard not to carry a piece of iron on you when someone is telling you that we don't want you here. We don't need you. We're not going to allow you to come into the front door. You have to stay at the back. We have to stop that stuff. And these people are hurting too. And if we become as bitter as them, we'll never get better. Black people and white people, a lot of them do the same thing to people. And we have to kill the will to mistreat our mirrors, the people that look just like us inside. You're hearing from Willie Mae Brown, artist and author of My Selma, true stories of a Southern childhood at the height of the civil rights movement. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be right back. I'm Tess Terrible. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. Today we are talking to author and artist Willie Mae Brown about her book for young adults, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. In the intro, Brown explains, quote, I write these stories of a Selma that I knew and loved, my own Selma, a Selma that brought me joy, troubled me, and baptized me into the racial injustice and into the race for justice. I asked Willie Mae about her experience seeing Martin Luther King Jr. speak when she was just 12 years old. I thought I was going to church again, you know, to see a preacher or hear a preacher preach. And there was a more important place that I wanted to be was with my sister. I wanted to know what uh, I was curious. I've always been curious. I wanted to know what teenagers did when they were by themselves because I knew what grown-ups did. And I always liked being around them. They had these secrets, you know. So my mother was like, no, you know, you're going to go with me and um, we're going to go to this church. And when we got there, it was... It smelled good, you know. It was the atmosphere. It was what was going on because 
this preacher was special. People were everywhere. And I'm wondering, where did he come from? Did he come from New York? Did he come from Birmingham, Alabama? Where did he come? He's a big time. But I don't want to see this guy. I don't care. You know, I wanted to go over to the school. So we, you know, my mother had had it with me and she had warned me more than once, you know, to just straighten up my tail and get on up those steps. And we walked in. And it was packed. And everything at that moment to me was like black and white. Even the clothes that people had on, I was seeing it in black and white because it was like a movie. And someone pointed towards my area and said that we had to take a seat. People had to take a seat and you know, something was happening there. And then this other guy, he stands up screaming and saying, there he is. They're playing. They're playing. And people went wild. They tore up the church. They started jumping around. And I'm trying to look. Martin Luther King walked the right side of the benches in the church on the stage and I I couldn't believe it because I had seen him so many times and the people were jumping around and they were clapping and holding their heads and there he is gang gang deliverer, you know, of all these hard times. And he was the tallest man in the world at that moment. But when I saw him, he was not that tall. But the presence was just immense. And he raised his hands when he was about to speak. And they got quiet. But it's for someone to have that much authority, I, would, I don't want to use that word, but that's what I have in my head right now. Or, you know, to, to be treated that way. And I'm looking at this man, and he's right in front of me. And it's not the television. My mother is there, and I'm there. And people are crying. And people are thanking him. And he is a king, although his name is King. And I'm looking at him. And once he wrote, waved his hands up for people, you know, and, you know, to sit down, he started to speak. And he said a lot that I can't remember. But one thing I do remember, as my mother, tears fell from her face into my my hair because I was laying on her chest what he did say is that you have the right to vote or oh, just give us the ballot just let us have it I was done I was done that door opened and it's still open 
How have you learned to use your voice and and not stay quiet? You you write in the intro of the book that you write from being nosy, which I felt a, a certain kinship to as a as a journalist. Um, That's and, right. You yeah. guys are nosy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I think I think you you share that in, in using your voice and and not and not staying quiet. When you are quiet, you are thinking, I am. But I'm not going to be quiet when things are happening. I'm going to write letters. I'm going to say something. And now that I am an author, I'm going to write it. What is your your message to uh, the next generation? You write that you want this next generation to remember the people that have fought for our rights so you can take care of the future. Explain to our listeners um, what that means to you. The past can always be repeated. And as a journalist, you know that Things are happening now in parts of the world, in America, where books are being banned. We, as people who have a constitution, we we should be um, aware that we are the people. And we don't want to be behind the scenes. We want to be right there where things are happening. I want the this generation, and it may be hard for them to do it because there's so much that they have. And, and we didn't have the technology that is now available. But what we had in the past were knowledgeable people like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And these people helped us, and they were young. And all of these movements that that we had in wars, they were fought by young people, you know. So I want the people of this generation to not forget what has happened. Be you a person from Pakistan or a person from Ireland person from Africa or America, don't forget what happened. Because when you forget, it gives ammunition to the people who forgot also how things were and how controlling they had been. They don't want to lose that. We have to remain cohesive. We have to Be quiet. And when you want to talk, make sure you're talking to the right people. You just can't go out here and just protest the way you want to. You have to be organized. We were organized. We didn't know anything, but we had mine. And we followed leaders that were really not trying to get anything else done 
except for the right to vote, equality, and to be a human being as we are. If that's what you're working for, you're going to have a good fight, a really good fight. Can you end our conversation by reading the afterword of your book to us? Yes, thank you for asking me. The afterword. My narrations open up the wounds and itch the scars that I and Selma's people carry. My voice will not be quiet, nor will I quiet the voices of those who gave me the talk. I wrote my stories of Selma, for it is also their story, their hearts and prayers and voices. My voice is their voice, and I will never forget my Selma. And here is where hope for the future lies. Hope is in the telling. Hope is in our voices and in our stories that we share as a tool of freedom. Hope is in our stories that free us and allow us to reach into the hearts of others and give them the freedom to speak as well. Willie Mae, thank you so much for being on our show today. We really appreciate your time. I appreciate you and I appreciate your show. Thank you so much. Willie Mae Brown is an artist and author of her recently published book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. I'm Tess Terrible, senior producer of Where We Live. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Special thanks to Dylan Reyes and Katie Talarski. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks for listening.